Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. My name is Matt Romero. I'm a fourth-year postdoc in April Piles Lab, and we're primarily a developmental biology lab looking at muscle development. And my role is to, to look at skeletal muscle across development and, and look at how the 3D genome is being regulated across developmental time. And before I get started, I'd like to give a brief overview of what I'll be talking about today, a brief intro into me and who I am. A lot of this feeds into my science and how I came into science in general. And then a summary of my DEI activity. These two things are, are pretty interconnected uh, with me as a person and then how I conduct my science. And then get into a little bit of my past research in exercise physiology and then transition into what that means for skeletal muscle and, and muscle stem cells and how I view them in the lab and specifically looking at muscle enhancers and how they communicate to their target gene promoters. And, and then I'll finish with some future directions of the work that I hope to do in my lab. So a little bit about me. I, I moved around quite a bit when I was a kid. I think we moved um, and lived in about eight towns before I was five years old, but I was primarily raised in Roswell, New Mexico. And if you're not familiar, Roswell's famous for one specific thing, and that's aliens. And so here's a nice sign outside of our town uh, that is actually uh, somewhat new, and so I haven't really seen um, that sign but just a couple of times. So, so it's still nice to see every now and again when I, when I visit. But New Mexico as a whole is known for a number of different things, but I primarily remember it for its chili and its food. And that's chili with an E, not with an I. That's very important. Um, and other states try to stake claim to chili. And if Colorado tells you that their chili's better, don't believe them. Uh, they're a bunch of phonies. Um, if you're going to, to uh, New Mexico, let me know. I can give you some food recommendations. There's also a large influence from Native American and indigenous populations. This is also part of my heritage as well. And so this makes for a nice, um, vibrant community and some really rich history that's in the state, primarily in northern New Mexico, which is a really beautiful place if you haven't been. But unfortunately for all the great things that are in New Mexico, there are some limitations there as well. And this extends to state funds and some of my time growing up in, in Roswell. And so growing up, there wasn't a lot of role models in my town. I grew up in a pretty small town um, around a lot of drugs and crime. Um, we didn't have a lot of money. I remember not having heat in the winter. I remember my mom skipping meals so that I can eat. Uh, and so that kind of created its own specific barrier. But um, in addition, when you're growing up in a small town, you also run into some small-mindedness. Um, and so unfortunately, having to deal with some of that. And, and when I came to academia, you know, you think that things are, are going to change. And in many ways, they have. I love academia and I love science. But in, in some means, um, while the words have changed, a lot of the sentiments are the same. And so a lot of people have to deal with their own unique barriers. And this is just something that I've had to deal with. But I consider myself very lucky because I had such a great foundation set by my mother. I mentioned I didn't have a lot of role models, but I had one really great role model, my mother. Um, this is a, a very stubborn woman uh, driven by her morals and values. Uh, I tried to get into trouble as a kid, and she would not allow it. She would physically take me out of the troubling situation. So as if I was hanging around with the wrong people, if I was at a party, she would physically go into that place and take me out. Um, and there was a number of kids in the town that um, were into you know, bad activities. And when it came to picking me up from my house, they would ask, is Matt's mom there? Uh, because they were they were terrified of her. Mom's only 4'10", uh, but this is one of the most intimidating women I've ever met. So um, kind of in that same vein, um, we know that minorities leave college, academia, and STEM at higher rates than non-minorities, and it's my opinion that these individuals need better support. Um, and, and not everybody has the same foundation that I had at, at home, 
And so I want to try to be that for others um, in my lab conducting science, but also interacting with the community um, to try to train uh, people and, and give them that support that they need to achieve their goals. Um, I try to do this in my everyday activities, so I sit on a DEI committee at UCLA. I did some DEI work at, in my graduate school at Auburn. Um, I also read scholarships for the Hispanic Scholarship Fund as well. So I try to give back when I can, um, um, trying to, again, set that foundation for people. And something that I really try to conduct in my everyday activity, whether it's be interacting with others or during my mentoring, um, it's a quote that I heard growing up playing sports. Many of you have already seen this as well. But it's that no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. So I think really listening to people, taking into, them into account is really important when, when thinking about how you're going about your everyday activity, but also about what goals that they're trying to set and they achieve uh, with themselves. And it was interesting. I really learned this when I was personal training. So I had, to, I had to work full-time in undergrad, and I was a personal trainer. And I noticed that a number of people did uh, significantly better when I took an interest in their everyday activities. And so what they did for work, you know, how their kids were, things like that, they really started to show up on time, push themselves harder. So it was a really good lesson to learn. And additionally, it was this time in training that really got me interested in science and in exercise specifically. So this is a, a review figure from um, uh, a nice review paper in which they're looking at how all the benefits of exercise and how that impacts a number of different diseases and highlighting just all the signaling cascades that get activated with exercise, how this signals to different tissues, um, and how this can have a beneficial response to things like cardiovascular disease or diabetes. Um, and so we know that exercise is really good for us, um, and we're starting to learn um, and become more aware of how inactivity is bad for us. Uh, and so having a, you know, increasing your risk of things like dementia, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes, a lot of the main players, but also things like muscle loss over time, which is uh, sarcopenia. Uh, so sitting or doing things like this is, is not great for us either. We need to, to do our best to, to stay active, which is admittedly easier said than done. Uh, but when I first got into my graduate work, I um, really wanted to focus on this macro level, how exercise can be used um, across different um, diseases and, and, and systems. And I first focused on some more um, intervention type studies. So um, working with people with mental health illnesses um, and looking at more qualitative measures. So how resistance training specifically helped with their activities of daily living, their mental health status. Um, but as I continue through that work, I really got interested in how molecularly exercise is regulating uh, muscle growth and, and adaptation and really started to focus on the transposable element in line one, uh, both in humans and in rats. So line one is a pretty interesting gene. It's a transposable element, meaning it can move about the genome, and it's a very specific type of transposable element being a retrotransposon, meaning that it can actually amplify itself throughout the genome. So these genes will be expressed by pull 2 like a lot of other genes. They'll be translated, and then they'll preferentially bind to their own mRNA and then uh, relocate back into the nucleus. And it's here that they actually reverse transcribe themselves um, back into the genome, and so therefore amplifying their number. And not all of these amplifications result in, a, in an active line 1, and so you have a lot of mutations that take place over time. Uh, and this is a lot of the context where line 1 has been research in the past, just looking at genome evolution and its role in gene regulation. But as we move closer and closer um, to more recent publications, it's really become indicated, um, line one expression has become indicated for its role in things like age-associated inflammation, as well as specific cancers or different diseases as well. So really playing an important role in, in much more than just, um, than just one aspect of biology. So I started out my graduate work with kind of a simple question, right? If exercise can can help people have a healthy outcome, healthy living, um, how does how is this actually translated molecularly? What's going on 
um, inside our cells to help this take place. So the first place I, I wanted to start with was, was line one. Uh, and so uh, I had a pretty simple study design in which we had um, college-age males. This is at Auburn, Alabama, so this is our primary demographic. Uh, college-age males coming in for an acute resistance training bout. And so this is just over a week. We had individuals come in. We took a muscle biopsy before their training. Uh, we gave them a week to recover and then had them do their lower body resistance training and then took an immediate biopsy after that training session. They then had two more consecutive training sessions, and then on the seventh day, we took our last muscle biopsy. And so that, was, that last biopsy was three days after the last training bout. And what I, was able to, what I noticed was that um, uh, line one expression is lower in the muscle from these college-age males at these post-training bouts, both after their immediate post, but also um, three days after their last training bout. So I was interested to see, well, if that's being downregulated, is there something happening at the line one promoter that's working to regulate this, this expression? And so looking at DNA methylation specifically. So this was done over acute, but also over training. And so in this, in this case, um, individuals came in for 12 weeks of training in which we took a pre and a post muscle biopsy. Um, and, and what we were able to see was that line one promoter methylation is higher after, after resistance training, although this is somewhat variable in these, in these, in this cohort. So seeing this, I wanted to to get a little more specific and try to pin down a pathway that, that may be active, that may be working to regulate the expression of this gene. And so I moved to a rodent model, um, collaborating with uh, Frank Booth over at Missouri, who's kind of like the godfather of exercise research. He, he has been, been at the game for quite a long time. Um, and, and so we took rats that had access to running wheels and those who didn't um, for up to six months. And so at six months of age, um, the gastroc was taken, and that's the muscle that I analyzed for my studies. And so what was great was that I saw the same trends in these animals, that line one expression was lower in the muscle of exercised animals, and that line one methylation was higher um, at that promoter in exercised animals. Um, but I also wanted to, to, again, test this pathway. And so um, one of the main ones that came up was AMPK, right? AMPK is, is very much upregulated with exercise, whether it be endurance or resistance training. So that was the first logical place to start. And there's, there's tons of research on the agonist ICAR, which activates AMPK, and it has been researched quite a bit in its role in promoting exercise-like um, responses. So I took C2C12 myoblasts, differentiated them into, into myotubes and culture, then treated them with different concentrations of ICAR and was able to show that with, with upregulation of AMPK, I actually um, see a, a decrease in line one expression. But I think one of the more interesting correlations um, that I saw in this work was its, its correlation with number of satellite cells in muscle and the reverse transcriptase enzyme activity in a muscle. Uh, and so this is not necessarily specific to line one, but, but looking at the number of satellite cells was inversely correlated with RT activity in the muscle from those same individuals. And so to look at this a little bit closer, um, there are a number of, of reverse transcriptase inhibitors that have been shown to inhibit line one enzyme activity. So I took C2C12 myoblasts and treated them with different concentrations of, of these um, RT inhibitors and showed that when I uh, decreased that enzyme activity, um, these cells actually proliferated um, uh, more so than a control group. So really highlighting that there's some interesting biology happening in these, in these myoblasts and possibly in satellite cells in general that we're just unaware of in the muscle field and exercise in general and how exercise may be working to you know, alter a number of things that we're not um, thinking about more so than just adaptation or uh, muscle size or growth. 
But it was this work that really got me interested in muscle stem cells or satellite cells, um, both biologically but also in exercise. And so there's some really great uh, debates happening in exercise um, in, in terms of how much satellite cells are needed for muscle growth. And so you have one group saying they are not needed, another group saying they're definitely needed. And so it makes for a nice, a nice controversy uh, in, in the literature. Uh, but there's also some fun stuff looking at the epigenetic memory of, of muscle and how one bout of training may inform later bouts of training and a, and a faster or a, a higher um, adaptation um, after, after a certain amount of time. And so, again, this work really got me interested in, in satellite cells and how muscle regenerates. So muscle is pretty amazing for its ability to regenerate, and it's largely driven by the uh, satellite cell, which is marked by the transcription factor PAC7. Now, these cells largely sit in a quiescent state, um, but when they get activated, whether it be through injury or exercise or just daily activity, you have this um, this cascade that, that happens, this differentiation cascade, uh, that's largely driven by the myogenic regulatory factors um, here, these transcription factors, MIF5, MyoD, and myogenin. Now, these are just three. There's, there's other ones as well, uh, but these mark some of the main uh, spots in the differentiation cascade. And then um, uh, myofiber... Maturity is marked by the by the expression of the contractile protein myosin. Now, in a more physiological setting, you know, if we have our muscle here with our our um, satellite cells sitting here on the periphery, um, after an injury, we have this huge influx of satellite cell proliferation, but also other supportive cell types that help regeneration take place. And after about a week or so, you start to see this nascent my, uh, myofiber regeneration. And after about three weeks you have um, regeneration of the fiber, but you'll still see these centrally located nuclei. Now, after a few more days to weeks, these nuclei will move back out here to the periphery, allowing muscle to actually uh, contract, and, and, and these things will get out of the way a bit. But um, th at that point, you won't be able to tell the difference between a regenerated fiber and a non-injured muscle fiber. And so this work is, is a large focus of the PIO lab in which uh, we're trying to develop strategies for the treatment of neuromuscular diseases, and in this case specifically Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So this is a, a fatal disease that primarily affects young boys. Um, unfortunately, these, these young patients um, uh, will die in their late 20s or early 30s, and it's 100% fatal. And so the lab is really focused on, on correcting this disease uh, primarily by by uh, two different strategies, one of which is isolating uh, fibroblasts from these patients. And they've actually done this work in the past from a former postdoc, uh, Courtney Young, in which they, they isolated fibroblasts. They CRISPR corrected them for the dystrophin gene that is causing this disease. And then they differentiated them into myotubes, showing that you were getting efficient dystrophin expression. And so the goal is to try to generate um, satellite cells that we can transplant into patients in order to help cure this disease. Um, and the other arm uh, is is developing strategies to deliver gene editing reagents to muscle. Delivering things to muscle is incredibly difficult. So coming up with strategies to to deliver these reagents to muscle in order to help cure this disease. So one way we're trying to do this is really understand how satellite cells develop and how they're regulated. Uh, and so um, we're, we use in vivo human myogenesis as a model um, in which we look at embryonic fetal and adult uh, muscle progenitors. And so um, in embryonic and fetal, we, we term these skeletal muscle progenitors cells, or SMPCs, and in adult, we have satellite cells, or SCs. Now, SMPCs um, are not easy to work with, per se, but they come in higher proportions than in adult satellite cells. So both SMPCs and satellite cells are PAC7 positive, um, but, but they behave a little bit different. And, and these satellite cells in adult muscle only make up about 1% of myonuclei. Uh, excuse me, 1% of nuclei in general. So uh, this, this is a pretty rare population. And what makes them even more difficult to study if it wasn't hard enough was once you isolate these cells and plate them, 
they essentially downregulate PAC7 expression. This is you know, dramatized for effect, but they downregulate PAC7 expression quite a bit, um, basically losing their stem cell properties, and then you're left with a myoblast. So expanding them in culture is, is pretty much a no-go. So to try to get around this, the Pile Lab, as well as others, have devised uh, what we call in, um, in vitro directed differentiation strategies in which we take pluripotent stem cells and we put them through an in vivo-like myogenesis, uh, resulting in this heterogeneous culture with PAC7-positive SMPCs. Um, but these SMPCs don't quite behave the same way as satellite cells. They're a little bit more immature, and, and we want to we wanna try to push this maturity further to generate actual satellite cells and culture. So this was shown by uh, two previous postdocs in the lab, one of them being Michael Hicks, in which he um, did a pretty simple experiment in which he isolated satellite cells and SMPCs from early developing muscle, plated them in culture, and then asked them to form myotubes. And what you can notice is that adult satellite cells form myotubes more efficiently than these early embryonic progenitors. Um, and whenever we, uh, whenever he placed these these uh, cells and transplanted them and grafted them into injured mouse muscle, um, the satellite cells regenerated muscle more efficiently than SMPCs from early developing muscle did. And this is shown both for the fetal muscle from in vivo um, cells as well as the cells that we make in culture. Neither regenerate muscle very well. So another postdoc wanted to understand how these cells are transcriptionally different. And so he took... Um, uh, muscle progenitors from different developmental time points from early embryonic week five to six all the way up to adult satellite cells and then did this massive single cell RNA-seq project. And, and when he plated them on a diffusion map, what he noticed is that these cells largely cluster based on their developmental time point. Um, and when he clustered our PSC-derived SMPCs, he noticed that they also cluster independently but more aligned with the stage two to three muscle progenitor. And so we, he quantified this a little bit more by, by creating what he called a, a developmental score, or dev score, uh, uh, based on the myogenic gene expression, showing that, yeah, indeed, these, these PSC-derived SMPCs that we make in the lab do align more with these early embryonic to fetal SMPCs and are quite distinct from, from adult satellite cells. And so what I wanted to understand was how these cells are transcriptionally different, what's controlling these transcriptional outputs, what inputs are going into, into these differences. And so I, I wanted to focus on enhancers and how they're being regulated across development. So first I wanted to understand which enhancers are active at our different stages of muscle development, uh, with the idea being that different enhancers are going to be active at different stages that are controlling these, these genes. Um, so I first wanted to uh, create a compendium of enhancers for these cells. And so you might say, well, you know, Matt, what about ENCODE, right? Like the, these, these data should be available. You should be able to see these enhancers. Uh, but unfortunately for those experiments, um, those satellite cells were isolated from muscle and then plated and expanded in order to conduct their experiments. And so we can't exactly use that data to look at satellite cells or, or early embryonic fetal muscle progenitors. So I wanted to create this compendium. Uh, but additionally, I wanted to understand how enhancers are communicating to their target genes in three dimensions. How are they actually regulating the expression of these genes? And I wanted to understand this in three dimensions. So the three-dimensional genome is regulated hierarchically. So if we start here with our DNA double helix, that DNA wraps around histones forming nucleosomes, giving rise to the chromatin fiber. And it's at this level that many um, of, the, of the promoter enhancer communication and interactions take place. And many genes are regulated by this loop extrusion um, um, uh, method or mechanism. 
But that's not the only level of, of folding, right? We, we can, these chromatin loops give rise to what's called chromatin domains or TADS. TADS is an acronym for topologically associating domains in which large regions of the genome will be um, interacting together. And I can show you um, here in just a bit what that looks like um, on a figure. But this also gives rise to chromatin compartments um, in which large regions of the genome that are regulated together interact together. So in one compartment, you have active genes that are on, all kind of interacting in a similar space, and, and repressed genes are interacting um, in their own kind of particular space. And, 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 um, and this gives rise ultimately to, to chromosomes and their chromosome territories. So again, wanting to understand um, you know, how these enhancers are communicating, how they're folding in three dimensions. And, and the hypothesis was really that there's, there's going to be stage-specific 3D genome regulation um, that's active here that is working to, to limit or give access to a specific set of enhancers in one cell type. And in this other cell type, you may have a separate genome configuration allowing access to a different array of enhancers that are working to regulate a, a target gene. So to kind of sum up the, the goals of the work and the hypotheses was, was to create this compendium of enhancers in 3D genome identify stage-specific enhancers, but specifically I wanted to look at the enhancers that regulate PAC7. So as I mentioned, that PAC7 expression goes down precipitously after plating. Um, if we're able to keep these enhancers um, active and this gene on for longer, then we can better understand and study these satellite cells in culture um, and possibly um, help grow these in order to, to improve our differentiation strategies. And so uh, these enhancers are not known in, in, in human muscle, so it's quite a feat to, to find these. Um, and, and again, my hypothesis being that these muscle, uh, muscle utilizes stage-specific enhancers that are regulated by the 3D genome. And so to, to answer this question and to get at this question, I took cells from different developmental stages, uh, starting with our H9 pluripotent stem cells, which we start our differentiations with, um, our PSC-derived SNPCs, which is, which is the stage 3 um, muscle cell, muscle progenitor, our in vivo SNPCs that we get from fetal tissue, and then adult satellite cells. Now, for these last three populations, these have to be fact-sorted and enriched for a population of interest uh, in which they undergo um, downstream analyses and cut and tag for histone modifications, promoter capture Hi-C for um, uh, promoter enhancer communication, and then Hi-C for genome-wide uh, interactions, and then RNA-seq for gene expression. So we're going to start at the highest structure first, looking at Hi-C to look at cell-specific 3D structures. Uh, and so Hi-C has been around for more or less uh, 10 to 15 years now, um, and, and it's a pretty involved technique in which you fix your, your cell of interest with formaldehyde, um, freezing the, nucle the, the nucleus essentially, then your restriction enzyme digest your DNA, and then proximity ligate the DNA that's in close um, contact with each other. From there, you can generate a, a DNA library, which you can deep sequence to generate what's called a genome-wide contact matrix. And on the X and Y axes here are your chromosomes, um, and, and so you can kind of think about this as a, as a table with rows and columns. So we can appreciate from the heat map is that many of these chromosomes largely interact with each other and not necessarily between chromosomes, and this has been known for quite some time in in the literature, but it, it's just nice to see that these chromosomes, again, are, you know, two is interacting with two and not necessarily with chromosome 20 down here. But if we take this, this uh, contact matrix and we zoom in quite a bit and we rotate the map 45 degrees, what you can generate here are these pyramid plots. And so these triangles are meant to depict the TADs that I was uh, describing earlier. And this is specifically on chromosome 1, um, and, and on the left-hand side here is PAC7. And so here's uh, pluripotent stem cells on the top, 
our PSE-derived SMPCs in the middle and then fetal SMPCs on the bottom. Uh, and, and what you can appreciate is that many of these, these triangles are demarcated by the boundary protein CTCF. And we can actually call these TADs um, statistically showing a couple of different things, um, one of which is that a lot of these TAD boundaries and, and TADs themselves are conserved across cell types. And, and this is not necessarily um, a, a new finding. These data have been known for quite some time. Um, but the, the specificity of it to muscle, this is the first time showing this, this structures in, in human muscle. But not all of these are the same, right? There are a few boundaries that are different. And um, uh, one example here is UBR4 uh, uh, having a different um, TAD structure. But what's interesting is if you look genome-wide, there is quite a bit of difference in, in what's overlapping. Only about 15% of the TADs are, are conserved across the three cell types. And if you compare these um, pairwise, only about half of the TADs are conserved uh, between, between cell types. And, and what's noticed is that with P, both PSE-derived and fetal-derived SMPCs, you have larger TADs but less of them relative to PSEs, which have smaller TADs but more of them. And so um, something's happening that's, that's keeping these, these, you know, uh, these 3D structures here um, throughout development um, um, that are specific to, to muscle. But even with these 3D changes, um, you know, being somewhat conserved, about 50%, the interactions within those TADs can change. So this really adds nuance to how these 3D structures are influencing uh, uh, gene regulation. And so here's the same pyramid plot, um, but I've added here the insulation score, uh, which is looking at interactions happening within these TADs. And so you'll notice that within these triangles, the interaction, the insulation score goes up, and at these boundaries, insulation score goes down. And so less interactions are happening at those boundaries. So here, this blue line is meant to depict um, PSCs. And what we can notice here, specifically around PAC7, is that the interaction gets higher in both PSC-derived SMPCs and, um, and in fetal SMPCs. So I was interested to understand, you know, what's interacting here with PAC7? Can I identify, you know, downstream elements that are working to regulate PAC7 um, in muscle? So high c um, uh, does give you a lot of looping information. And so using uh, a different statistical method, you're able to call um, uh, loops that um, here are, are depicted in these black circles, which are largely also demarcated by, by um, CTCF. But this is, this is genome-wide. Um, it's hard to really identify um, the PAC7 loops. And so I, I intersected this with the, with the PAC7 promoter. And what you can appreciate is only getting one to two loops emanating from this PAC7 promoter um, using HiC doesn't quite give the resolution that I was hoping for. Uh, and so I really wanted to try to resolve this a little bit better. So I utilized a second technique called promoter capture HiC. So promoter capture HiC was um, developed after HiC, but it's very similar in its beginning stages, in which you still fix the, the nucleus with formaldehyde digest with the restriction enzymes, and then ligate the DNA that's in close proximity. But instead of sequencing your DNA library, what you'll do is you'll hybridize probes that are specific to gene promoters. Then you can pull that, that bio, those biotinylated probes down and generate a subsequent library, and then sequence that, giving you a promoter viewpoint between your gene promoter of interest and downstream elements that it's interacting with. And so when utilizing promoter capture HiC, and here specifying on PSC-derived SMPCs, and fetal SMPCs, um, I'm able to show uh, more loops emanating from that PAC7 promoter. And what's interesting is that PSE-derived SMPCs have less loops, and they also uh, are showing some differential binding uh, between their downstream elements. Now, 
Whether these downstream elements are enhancers or not is still an open question. These loops don't necessarily mean that they're interacting with enhancers. And so I wanted to, to better resolve this by looking at histone modifications. And so I did this using a technique called cut and tag. Cut and tag is very similar to ChIP-seq in which you're using antibodies to look at your protein of interest, in this case, histone modifications. Uh, but instead of shearing the DNA and sequencing it, um, you use TN5 that will cut your DNA and then you can generate libraries from there. And, and the reason this method is, is so useful is that you can use low cell numbers. So as I mentioned, satellite cells make up a very small um, uh, percentage of nuclei. And so using this is pretty, pretty beneficial to, to using it for, for satellite cells. And so here, um, I, I'm focusing specifically first on the histone modification H3K4 methyl 1. So this marks all enhancers in a cell, not necessarily active enhancers. And here's a genome-wide uh, track of K4 methyl 1 and, and fetal and PSC-derived SNPCs. And what's interesting is that PSC-derived SNPCs have more uh, enhancer peaks than fetal SNBCs do. Um, but when you zoom in a bit more and look at the overlap, there's only about a 30% overlap between these between these cells, um, suggesting some stage-specific enhancer usage. Now, I say that because when you look at the K4-methyl-3 overlap, uh, this marks active promoters, there's an 80% overlap. Um, and so this is, this is much more conserved between the cells than, than the enhancer usage. So next I wanted to zoom in specifically on PAX7. So again, I, know, I mentioned that PAX7 expression is down-regulated um, as soon as you plate them. And so I wanted to identify these enhancers to see if we can keep PAX7 on. So here's specifying on the histone modifications, uh, the repressive mark K27-methyl-3, the active promoter mark K4-methyl-3, and then the enhancer mark K4-methyl-1 with its activation mark K27-acetylation. So focusing here on, on PSE-derived SNBCs, what you can see is that there's um, more uh, repressive chromatin around that PAX7 promoter than there is for fetal SNPCs, and there's also less of this activation uh, active promoter mark. Downstream, you see the same um, K4-methyl-1 marks, which again mark all enhancers, but you largely uh, um, have this absence of activation marks at those same enhancers. And so these are downstream elements. These, aren't, again, aren't necessarily indicative of enhancers. And so I intersected and integrated this data with my promoter capture high C data. And many of those regions that have these enhancer marks are also looping to the PAX7 promoter, both in these PSC-derived and fetal-derived SNPCs. So now I have targets to go after to actually validate these regions, to look if, if, to actually validate if these um, regions are enhancers of PAX7. And so to do this, I'm utilizing a few different methods. These experiments are actually ongoing. Um, and so I'm utilizing two different um, cell lines, one with a CRISPR-A knock-in that we're collaborating with the Barrett Lab from uh, uh, the Barrett Lab with, um, in which they have a VPR knock-in in, uh, in human pluripotent stem cells. These cells uh, are undergoing um, um, SNPC differentiations in which I'll, I'll activate these enhancers that I've identified, uh, these putative enhancers, and then measure uh, PAX7 expression. But I also want to test the functionality of, of keeping these PAX7 enhancers activated um, and seeing if there's a functional aspect to it. And so in grafting these same cells into injured mouse muscle to see if this is having an ability to, to better regenerate damaged fibers. I'm also conducting the inverse of this experiment, so using, using uh, another cell line from the Barrett lab uh, that has DCAS9 crab knocked in, so we're pressing these, uh, these enhancers of PAC7, um, again, measuring PAC7 expression and then grafting them in, in injured mouse muscle with the hypothesis that these cells will not be able to regenerate damaged fibers very well. Now, these experiments are ongoing, like I said, but I did get a bit antsy, and so I've done some preliminary experiments. 
in which I'm using um, a nuclease Cas9 and targeting a downstream enhancer that I think I've found. So I've taken fetal SMPCs um, and, and introduced CRISPR-Cas9 and targeted a specific enhancer downstream of, of PAC7 and then simply just measured um, gene expression using qPCR. And so what I'm showing here is data from freshly sorted SMPCs and then a Cas9 control. And what you can appreciate is there is a precipitous downregulation of PAC7 expression as soon as you plate these cells. Um, but whenever I have a Cas9 target, either the PAC7 promoter or that downstream enhancer, uh, there's a significant downregulation of PAC7 even more so than in the Cas control. Um, and so these experiments, like I said, are preliminary. Um, and so I need to repeat these and, and include a couple different controls as well as undergo these, these cell line experiments. But this gives a good indication that I have identified these, these PAC7 enhancers um, specific to human muscle that haven't been found before. And so to conclude this portion, um, as I mentioned, there's, there's some interaction changes happening within these TADs, um, not necessarily always across TADs between PSCs to fetal SMPCs and that there appears to be some stage-specific enhancer usage happening between uh, in vitro and in vivo-derived um, SMPCs. And then by utilizing promoter capture, high C, and cut and tag, been able to identify a, a number of putative PAC7 enhancers, both in uh, in vitro-derived and in vivo-derived SMPCs. Um, and then with some preliminary work, identified at, at least one uh, putative enhancer of PAC7 for the first time in human muscle. The PAC7 enhancer for mouse was recently shown in two papers just in the last one to two years. Uh, and so this is this is a pretty um, significant finding for us. And April shares a story in which she was talking with um, a pretty big name in, in the muscle field. And she asked her, you know, what, what are the enhancers for PAC-7? Uh, do we know those yet? And she goes, don't even try. <laughs> She's been trying for like 20 or 30 years. Uh, so this is a pretty fun finding. I actually just got this data back on Friday. Um, I analyzed it on Friday, so that's why I'm so excited about it. Um, okay, so now I'd like to transition a little bit into the work that I would like to do in my lab. Uh, and so I'm um, keeping a focus on muscle in general, but also stem cells in their function and disease. Uh, and so I envision a program in which I am focusing on muscle and looking at the transcriptional mechanisms that are taking place uh, with exercise and general stem cell biology in muscle. And also how this is interfered with or interacts with uh, various diseases, and in this case, uh, specifically obesity. So exercise and obesity are pretty tightly linked, um, and there's a number of factors that go into obesity. It's not just exercise, but um, you know, obesity is a growing problem in, in the U.S., but across the world, affecting nearly 2 billion people worldwide. Um, and in the U.S. alone, this costs approximately $300 billion a year in healthcare costs. Um, now, there's some previous studies that have shown that, that um, obesity um, results in a rewiring of the, of the epigenome and adipose cells and that this uh, rewiring also results in, in aberrant gene expression. Um, but specific to muscle, there's also a blunting that takes place um, in, in subjects, uh, in, in obese muscle, in which the genes that are um, typically expressed from exercising muscle are blunted um, compared to a normal control condition. Uh, and it's also been shown to impair myogenesis. Uh, this is both developmentally as well as in myoblasts isolated from obese subjects. Now, one important note that I, that I love to drive home is that a lot of the benefits that you see with exercise in obesity or in other conditions is independent of weight loss. So you don't have to lose weight to see the benefits of exercise. And I love stressing that because just getting up and being active um, will give you a lot of the benefits, um, even if you're not seeing a change in the scale. And this is coming from published studies, but also, you know, anecdotally as my time as a personal trainer. 
Now, for, for my role in the lab, I really want to focus um, on the role of enhancers in the exercise response and the development of obesity and skeletal muscle. And so um, with this kind of overarching um, slide here just showing that um, looking at the enhancer landscape and resolving this enhancer landscape in, in control and obese settings and muscle, this, is, this has not been done yet, as well as um, uh, looking at how exercise affects this enhancer landscape and gene response in exercising muscle from control and obese animals, and really testing if exercise has a rescuing effect on this blunted gene expression seen in obese muscle. And the long-term goal is to develop a strategy in which I can um, uh, mimic exercise in vivo uh, by targeting these identified enhancers um, and testing if this actually has a physiological adaptation, testing muscle function, their endurance capacity, and metabolic dynamics as well. So first, I'd like to, to test the or determine the enhancers for exercise-responsive genes in muscle um, simply by using an exercise and control setting and using these same techniques that I've described um, today with cut and tag RNA-seq and promoter capture Hi-C, um, with the hypothesis being that exercise right, regulates these genes and that there's an enhancer landscape change associated with this change in gene expression. Um, but additionally, I want to resolve the same landscape um, in obesity with and without exercise to see if exercise has a rescuing effect in, in muscle. Um, but, you know, I'd also like to see what players are, are active and what, what's actually driving these changes. And so um, uh, focusing on the enzymes that, that deposit this activation mark, this K4-methyl-1, developing a muscle-specific um, MLL3-4 knockout um, in the muscle of, of exercising animals, testing their ability to upregulate exercise-responsive genes, and if this blunts the exercise adaptation. And so I've actually been in contact with the lab that generated these mice, and they've agreed to send them uh, to me to collect some preliminary data. Um, and this would be uh, both muscle-specific as well as satellite cell-specific, so generating satellite cell-specific MLL3-4 knockouts to test the, the necessity of these enzymes and enhancers of, of satellite cell biology and differentiation. As I mentioned, the long-term goal is really to, to model exercise by targeting enhancers in vivo. Um, you know, first, starting in vitro, can I actually target these these exercise-responsive genes, upregulate them, and have um, a, a, a physiological response? And then targeting these in vivo uh, in animals, and again testing their function, endurance, and metabolic activities. And so, um, you know, really focusing the lab on on transcriptional mechanisms in muscle and also how this relates to exercise, but also extending this out to different systems. Um, exercise affects multiple tissues throughout the body. Uh, it, it's beneficial in all these different tissues. Um, and so the brain is a large driver of some of these exercise responses. I want to understand transcriptionally what's happening there. And then in the gut, I have ulcerative colitis. Um, it's a really terrible disease, so I'd really like to understand you know, how exercise is therapeutic there. It's been really helpful for me, mostly from a mental side, um, uh, but really testing if there's a positive effect happening at the, at the cell level um, in, in various contexts. And of course, always keeping the focus on, on muscle and, and muscle stem cells. And with that, I'd like to thank you all again for your time and the opportunity to speak today. I'd really like to thank April Pyle and her lab. She's a great mentor, really um, allowed me to do this work. I had no genomics experience coming into the lab, uh, no developmental biology experience, and so she's been really, really great in supporting my, my drive and my endeavors. Uh, this is a, a picture from last Halloween. Um, I tend to wear the same colors in the lab, and the lab decided to dress up like me for Halloween. Uh, and so they had on black shirts and blue jeans. 
but uh, also the undergrads in our lab as well. Uh, here, Vera and Rodrigo are the undergrads that, that I've been mentoring. Vera recently just got a, a Fulbright scholarship to teach Span uh, English to um, students in Spain, and Rodrigo recently just got accepted to Princeton, and so he's on his way there in the fall. So some really great undergrads, uh, as well as my my funding. And when I, I've I've been very fortunate and very grateful to get a lot of opportunities to do this work, um, as well as the the lift up program, so that I can collect some of these preliminary, preliminary data uh, for starting up my own lab. Um, and again, thank you, and I'd be happy to answer any questions. Questions for Matt? I'll start with a quick one first. Um, so, when you have this sort of activation of stem cells through exercise. Um, do you think that the changes that you see, are they uh, similar or distinct from a regenerative cue in response to injury? That's a really good question. Um, we don't know a lot about how stem cells are regulated with exercise. We know that they are activated, and we know that we get a lot of the same transcription factors that are active. Um, but how this relates to like an injury setting and regeneration um, is not as well described. And so that's something I'd really like to test out as well, is just how do these signatures change between the two conditions and what's unique and, and common between the two. And like, for example, like if it, when you do an injury model in a mouse, like if you injure one leg, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you've got regeneration going on there, but you've also got compensation to mm -hmm. another leg, right? And yeah, so yeah. That they're using that more. So, you know, is the response that you see, you know, similar or different in those two or? Yeah, I mean, for regeneration specifically, like we haven't tested that to my knowledge, at least I haven't. But what's interesting is even in exercise, you can see that same response where if you exercise one leg, you'll also see this, some of the same signaling cascades get upregulated in the opposite leg. Uh, and so it's, you know, kind of one thing that you have to be cognizant about and try to control for. Um, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit difficult to tease out, but, but yeah, you see that same thing across both conditions. Hi, thank you for the beautiful talk. Um, Regarding like female in their fertile time uh, period, um, how does cycle, you know, various hormonal uh, levels um, affect the response to exercise? And what about pregnancy? Would that change it? Yeah. So that's a great question. And there's been a, a huge push to try to understand that more. Right. And so I, I don't necessarily think that the long-term adaptations to exercise are, are going to be different, right? And, and even within the cycle, um, I don't believe those general responses are different. Um, now, fat metabolism can sometimes change um, between the sexes uh, depending on cycle. So that's something to, to be cognizant about. But in terms of exercise, yeah, there's been a huge push to understand this um, better and to better include um, uh, females both on the animal level as well as, as women in, in, in human studies to make sure that, that if there are differences, that we're seeing them. But up to this level, there doesn't seem to be big differences, which is another reason why they're pushing to include more women in studies, because if there's no differences, why exclude them? Um, uh, and then in terms of pregnancy, um, you know, it's generally recommended that you do exercise in pregnancy, barring something serious going on um, um, in which your doctor will have input. But um, there was a, a lab at Miami when I was there, and she would have women do these intense exercise bouts while pregnant and, and like there was no issue. And so, you know, it is really context specific, uh, but it seems like exercising in pregnancy is, is fine and, um, and you can still make adaptations during pregnancy. 
Matt, over here. Great talk. Um, so I'm going to ask something a bit controversial, I think, and to merge, I guess, between two of your studies. Mm -hmm. um, so when I'm thinking about exercise, it's kind of thinking about something very acidic because my muscles really pain. <laughs> it's really painful afterwards. Yeah. Um, but do you know anything about how um, a pH or acidic environment can have affect the 3D structure of the chromatin and in a way affect how enhancers regulate expression during regeneration? Yeah, so that is a, a hot topic. So I, I, one of the, my committee's members was um, Bruce Gladden, who is an oxygen metabolism. I was not in your committee, though. What's that? <laughs> I was not in your committee. No. <laughs> um, and, and he, he um, loves to talk about lactate and the acidity of muscle. And so um, I think one thing to... You know, he, he would kill me if I didn't say this, like lactate, lactic acid is not like building up in your muscles, right? Like you actually use the lactate for energy. And so you'll actually throw that back into the cell cycle. Um, but your pH does lower in, in muscle. And so um, in terms of the 3D genome, I think there, there may be some metabolic inputs. And so um, there's been some preliminary research uh, in cancer cells looking at how when you have these um, isocitrate dehydrogenase mutations, that alters things metabolically, and that actually alters DNA methylation, which then can alter the 3D structure. So I do think there's something happening there uh, metabolically that's working uh, to either rewire, enhance, or promote communications, or maybe even on this broader scale of, of the 3D genome. And, and that's work that I hope to do, you know, get at some of these metabolic parameters, not just the genetic ones. Um, and, and so lactic, uh, lactate is a, is a huge... Um, you know, thought in that part, especially because now they've discovered a few years ago the, the lactylation of, of histones and that in muscle this is having a response in terms of the genes that are expressed, at least developmentally. So I think there's a lot of play and a lot of opportunity there. I've got one more question. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that there's a big temporal difference in the response to exercise? So like if you're, you know, you know kids or, you know, you know, young mice or, you know, adult mice or old mm -hmm. adult mice is, is the response to exercise. Do you think going to be similar across those ages or are you, are you going to see distinct responses? So that's, I, I think a very fun question. Uh, and so there's been a lot of research. I don't, I don't know if you're, I don't, I don't know if you're going this route, but I think, I mean, in general, the response is you improve, right? So whether you're young, uh, middle-aged or old, you will improve. Now that, that, um, rate of improvement and the magnitude of improvement is a little bit differently across age. Um, and so like a younger or middle-aged person may improve more than an older person might. Um, but there's also some very preliminary studies. I don't know if you guys remember playing sports and, and coaches talking about muscle memory um, and that if you exercise when you're young, you'll be able to, you know, either exercise better or grow muscle faster when you get older. Uh, and so there's been some, some cool studies from the Sharples lab and a couple others that have looked at DNA methylation in muscle. Um, when you exercise, um, when you're young, you wait a certain amount of time, you retest, and these, these are all college-age males, um, you retest them a few months later with no exercise, and their DNA methylation is lower, and they have a larger gene expression response relative to, to a control group that's exercising for the first time. And so um, I think there is some interesting dynamics in terms of when you exercise and your past history of exercise. Yeah, my question was related to Rob's question. So what happened when we get very old? Mm. That uh, exercise has different impacts on us and then maybe we can do as much as we we used to, to do. And then I've seen like people, like elder people to, to not being able to exercise or when they only walk, just feel like when they were running before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So this, I think this goes to, 
Um, I mean, depending on the the disease status of an individual, right, that's going to impact how much they can exercise for sure. But also um, to think in relative terms. And so, you know, as you get older, you do lose muscle mass. And so you're not able to generate as much force. And then if you have less muscle mass, um, you're you're probably going to have less type 1 fibers, which are the oxidative fibers that you use for things like running, right? Um, so keeping in context that as long as you're doing more than what you were doing before, even if um, you're at this, you know, um, you know, state where you can't improve as much, just doing more will help you adapt. And that adaptation will take place no matter your age. Um, but also starting off slow, right? So if somebody's not exercising, um, exercise can really be anything. If you're, if you can get out of bed, right? So I, when I was first starting out, I thought I wanted to be a physical therapist. Um, and so I, I rotated in a few different hospitals. And so we would take patients in bed, just get them out of bed and walk them across the room. That was their exercise. And they've done some space flight type studies or disuse studies in which they took individuals, had a bed rest um, as a model of atrophy, and then had them walk to a bike in order to test their exercise capacity. And they noticed that just walking from the bed to the bike was inducing muscle growth. And so you really have to keep them from doing anything. And I think this the inverse kind of applies here. If you're not doing anything, just getting out of bed and moving around is going to elicit some sort of adaptation. So even if you can't get out and run a marathon or squat 500 pounds, um, just squatting out of a chair, ten, and I and I've worked with, I worked at a retirement community when I was training too. Um, I would just get people out of chairs ten times. You know, I would just give them small bands to do things, and so those little things can really have an impact. Um, and so I think it's it's never too late to start, and and always try to do a little bit more than you did, did last time. You probably don't have data, but because you mentioned colitis, um, mm-hmm. I was wondering what your what your thoughts about exercise and colitis, knowing that. Colitis usually too much exercise can associated with inflammation, so it can actually increase uh, the bouts of colitis. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think exercise would help or not? Yeah, so I, you know, I personally don't have data. I have my anecdotal experiment experience, and then I have a few papers that have been kind of you know cohort studies where they just took a a, a group of people with UC or Crohn's and then had them exercise, and what they found was their um, symptoms in general got better. Now, these are largely qualitative measures, so just how they felt, how many bowel movements they were having. And so it seems to be beneficial over time. And I think the inflammation that you see with exercise, um, I, was, I was talking with a professor earlier, is, is a little bit unique. And so um, a previous PI that I had, um, he would give mice heart attacks, right? And he would look at how heart muscle developed after a heart attack or regenerated after a heart attack, um, and specifically at, at, at um, reactive oxygen species. And you notice that when he exercised these animals and then gave them a heart attack, they recovered better. And they pinned it down to specifically IL-6 and IL-6 from the muscle feeding back to the heart. And, and so I think these, these exercise-specific inflammatory signals, um, as long as you're not having, like, if you're not in an inflammatory state already from some sort of disease, um, could be beneficial and I think are a little bit distinct from other inflammatory, um, um, you know, environments that we see from other diseases. So I think... Um, you know, it's going to be context dependent, of course, but I think it, it could be helpful in, in that it's, you know, still eliciting some sort of response and communicating to that tissue in, in some unique fashion. All right. Let's thank Dr. Romero again for a wonderful talk. Thank you.